0: Let's uh, hear God's word together. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2. We continue our study of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. I'm beginning to get to the stage in my life where advertisers are beginning to target me with visions of the perfect retirement community. Some of you who are a little older than me know how this goes. It just seems like there's a flood of these things that come in one form or another. Places where the grass is always green and the sun always shines and there's always another perfect round of golf. What a vain utopian dream they are selling. For even people who live all their lives planning for the perfect retirement get there only to find out that they get heart disease or diabetes. And before they know it, one of them's gone, and they're living there in the dream world that's crushed. Ah, but dreams of utopia are everywhere in our lives. They crop up uh, everywhere we look. It's the vision of America that springs eternal in the hearts of politicians. We're hearing it these days already. If only there were just more tax dollars and more power and more control to bring it about. It's the opportunity envisioned by the industrialists if only that labor was cheaper and there were less government regulations. Oh, we could have utopia. It's the world imagined by the environmentalists if only man with all of his messiness messiness would leave Mother Earth alone. Utopia. Make no mistake, we have paradise engraved deeply in our hearts. We just differ on what it would take to make it a reality. Well, I bring all that up because I think our text this morning addresses the root of this longing in us. Explains why this desire for some utopian dream is in our hearts and how it might ever be satisfied. Let me read the account of the seventh day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, So on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. I have uh, two truths for us to meditate on this morning from this passage, and the first is this, God takes pleasure in his paradise. God takes pleasure in his paradise. Now I know that may not be the first statement that comes to your mind when we read this text, but let me just throw out a question to you. In what sense did God rest on the seventh day? It says God rested. What, in what sense? Normally for us, rest has to do with recuperation from the weariness of our labor. We get tired. We have to have a break. We need a day off. We need rest. So, could we say that of God? Could we say God's been busy working for six days creating? He's pushed. He badly needs to catch his breath. And so, on the seventh day, he took the day off and rested. Well, obviously, that's preposterous. God doesn't get tired. He's omnipotent. God doesn't need a break. He is eternally self-existent. So what does it mean? God rested. It must mean something. God rested. Well, actually, we get some clue in that there are two different words for rest and the word used here actually means to cease. On the seventh day, God ceased from his work. Okay, that makes sense. But is that all this means? In the seventh, is the seventh day only about what did not happen? Is God saying that on the seventh day, God didn't do anything? And so he blessed and hallowed his doing nothing. I think there must be more to it than that. So what does it mean? He rested. I think there are two things in view here as we think of God ceasing from the creating that he's been doing on the seventh day. And I think the first idea is one of completion. The idea of completion here. God didn't just quit cease, he finished. And what he finished was established. We read statements like this in the Psalms. The Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. You see, the statement of God's completion of his creating activity is what enables us to do science. How could you analyze and study something that was only half finished? How could you possibly measure anything if the very standard of measurement might change tomorrow? But it doesn't, because God has completed his work. He has established the earth. It will not be moved. He didn't just cease, he finished creating this masterpiece, which is the universe. John Calvin understood it this way. He wrote, God ceased from all his work when he desisted from the creation of new kinds of things. But to make the sense clearer, understand that the last touch of God had been put in order that nothing might be wanting to the perfection of the world. The actual state of the work was as God would have it to be, as if he had said, as if he had said, then was completed what God had proposed to himself. This language is intended merely to express the perfection of the fabric of the world. God finished his paradise. There's a second thing of you here, though, as we talk about God's resting, his ceasing from creating... Not just completion, but there's also the idea of God's delight. We've seen this throughout the six creative days. Repeatedly, at the end of each day, God said, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And the sixth day, and it was very good. But now God's finished. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't just walk away and leave it to run on its own power. No, he designates a day of rest. He blesses it. He makes it holy. You see, God sits back and takes pleasure in his paradise. Matthew Henry describes it this way. The eternal God, though infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, yet took a satisfaction in the work of his own hands, He did not rest as one weary, but as one well pleased with the instances of his own goodness and the manifestations of his own glory. Or as another writer, David Atkinson, says so plainly, and what is God's rest? Is it not delight in his creation? Is it not looking with joy on the world and saying this, is good God takes pleasure in his paradise as I was thinking about this I came across looking for something else I came across Psalm 104 surely this is what the psalmist is describing God the creator delighting just delighting in his creation that runs at his command and trusts him in his goodness. I've got to read this song. Listen to the beauty of God taking pleasure in his paradise. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their water. He makes the clouds his chariot, and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the wind his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled at the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They float over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned them. You set a boundary. They cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravine. It flows between the mountains. They give birth to all the beasts. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle. He plants and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are refuge for the comies. The moon marks off the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they steal away, they return and lie down in dens. Then man goes out to work. To his labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. God takes pleasure in His paradise. Oh, if your faith is too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, if you despise the things of this creation as unworthy of your interest or your concern or your care, you need to rethink. You're not reflecting God's perspective. For God takes pleasure in his paradise. Oh, but there's another truth in this passage that's even more fantastic than the first. God calls us to enter into his rest with him. God calls us to enter his rest. When you're studying the Bible, The most basic controlling truth concerning Bible interpretation is this. Don't ever forget this. This applies to all Bible study. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. You and I are not the ones who decide how we'll interpret the Bible. The Bible tells us how to interpret the Bible. And this text this morning, about the seventh day of creation, is a classic case study in how to do that. For throughout the Bible, God tells us how he wants us to understand this text. He doesn't just give us these three little verses and then set us out to make of them what we will. Several times he quotes these verses and explains to us, first quite simply in the Old Testament, And then more profoundly in the New Testament, he explains to us how it is we're to understand this rest that God uh, uh, created and that God ordained on the seventh day of creation. And the interpretation that Scripture gives us of God's seventh day creation rest is this. God is calling us to come share his rest. And we see that the first time in Exodus 20. There God gives the Ten Commandments. And when we read the Ten Commandments, we come to the fourth commandment, which, uh, uh, let me read it for you, from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. And why? He quotes our text. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, sin had entered the picture here, as we'll see in the next chapter, where we see Adam and Eve's sin and the fall. And so, though God had in his creation transformed the chaos into cosmos, sin threatened to plunge the creation back into chaos. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, gave his law to his people, his plan for ordering and preserving their lives in their society. And here in the midst of this plan of God's order for his people, God provides a day when they might taste the sweetness of his rest that was lost. The perfect fellowship which had been lost in the fall, into sin. That was the rationale for the whole Sabbath observance. Yes, you must labor. Yes, you must live in this fallen world. But on this day, God calls us to come and taste the sweetness of his rest again. But by the time Jesus came, the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath commandment into a hard task, master. It wasn't about coming and then tasting the sweetness of anything. Why, they were offended when Jesus walked through the grain field with his disciples and picked enough to eat. They hated Jesus for healing a sick man, raising a lame man on the Sabbath. They insisted on total inactivity, In John 5, Jesus rebukes them. And he says, My Father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. In other words, Jesus said, You've completely misunderstood what this was all about. You've misunderstood what it means that God rested the seventh day. God didn't glorify idleness, it's not about inactivity. God himself continues to do his providential work. The Sabbath was intended to call us to rest in him. That was the very thing Jesus was doing as he healed the sick and raised the lame. He was enabling them to taste of the rest of God. The rest from the burden of sin that had affected their body. Oh, but for the Pharisees, the Sabbath had ceased to be a privileged taste of the sweetness of God's gracious offer. For them, the Sabbath became a way by which they might establish their own righteous standing before God. As if God could be bought off. As if their sin could be atoned for. In exchange for a little Sabbath keeping. But that was the exact opposite of why God established the Sabbath in the first place. He never created the Sabbath as a way that we could earn some standing before Him. In fact, way back in the beginning, if you want to look at Exodus chapter 31, let me read Exodus 31, verse 12 and 13. God explains to us the purpose here. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. A sign of what? So that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. I am the Lord who makes you holy. The Sabbath, Sabbath was not a way to establish your own righteousness before God. The Sabbath was a time to cease from your labor and recognize that God makes us holy and he allows us to enter into his rest by his mercy. It was a sign between God and his people that only he could make them holy. Holy. Only he could bring them into rest. Yet to this day, nowhere is there more self-righteousness than here. People proud of their Sabbath-keeping, as if they're earning merit before God, as if they're establishing their holiness, The very thing God said he must do. Now, the Sabbath was simply a call. God's call to rest only in him. Oh, this is not my spin on the Sabbath. This is the New Testament's explanation. For there's yet another passage where our text is explained for us in quite some fullness. And we must read it. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Let me just read this passage and think with the author as we do. And then we'll try to just summarize it a little bit. Hebrews chapter 3 beginning with verse 7, he's about to quote Psalm 95. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my way. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sins deceitfulness we have come to share in christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first just as it has been said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion who were they who heard and rebelled were Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said. So I declared in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished from the creation of the world. For somewhere, Genesis 2, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, that's Psalm 95, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as we said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is in the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience we'll stop there now this is a long passage and this is a whole study in itself but could you pick up the point of it as we went let me me just reiterate what we read the writer is calling these believers to courage and hope and faithfulness in Jesus. And in doing so, he quotes Psalm 95. He says, don't be hard-hearted like Israel was back in the desert. God tested them and they refused to trust him. They refused to obey him and walk in his ways and God declared, they will never enter my rest. And so the writer then picks up this idea of rest. He says this promise still stands. He makes reference to our text back in Genesis 2. This is the promise of Genesis 2, the seventh day God rested. But then God's people didn't enter that rest. Oh, they had the good news proclaimed to them. Not only in the Sabbath, which was a sign of that rest, but in the promised land, which was a sign of that rest. But they refused to trust and obey God. Let there be no doubt, he says. Joshua didn't lead him into the rest, or else David wouldn't have been still speaking about it and calling people to it in Psalm 95. And so Hebrews gets to the real point of all of this. The rest which God promised, back in Genesis, back in the Sabbath regulation, back in the promised land, back in Psalm 95 that David talks about entering rest, the rest which... God had in mind is the rest that Jesus brings through the gospel. For here in the gospel we cease from our own efforts and trust God to make us holy, just like he said back in Exodus 31. Here we're called to abandon ourself and to believe, to trust, to rest, to obey Jesus. To do the very things Israel refused to do in the desert. And he says, Hebrew says, and what will you do? Are you going to refuse just like them? Now they were celebrating the Sabbath week after week, but they never entered God's rest because they wouldn't trust him. He says, Jesus has come and he's brought the rest. And it's a matter of ceasing from your labor and trusting him to save you. Trust in him to give you that rest. Trust in him to bring you into God's eternal rest. Are you going to believe? Are you going to trust? Are you going to walk with him? Or are you too going to harden your heart? Don't harden your heart, he said. Don't turn away. Be careful that you don't neglect the gospel. That's the message of Hebrews 3 and 4. Just what we said back in Genesis. God calls us to enter his rest. And let there be no question where that rest is found. It is found not in Sabbath keeping. It is found in Jesus who fulfilled the law on our, in our place. That's what God says plainly in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let me read it. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or in regard to religious festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. God calls us to enter His rest in the way He had provided, that is, to trust Christ. And sure enough, when we listen to Jesus, we hear Him. Extending this call, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, you see, this is what the Sabbath was all about. God giving his people a reminder of his perfect rest which sin had destroyed. And God keeping that hope alive until the Savior came and made it a reality. And today it is a reality. Rest, restoration, fellowship with our Creator in the blessedness of His creation. Through Jesus, who by His death and resurrection has taken away our sin and brought us into rest. We quoted from David Atkinson a few minutes ago. Let me continue with his description. He says, what is God's rest? Is it not delight in his creation? Is it not looking with joy on his world and saying, this is good? Our Sabbath rest is an opportunity God gives us to share in his delight. The climax of the creation is man the worshiper, Homo adorans. Here's the one who, in fellowship with the Creator, Creator, enjoys the Creator's work. What is our creation for? That we may be creatures of the seventh day. That we may share God's work, bringing order to the universe that we may grow in personal communion with him and so reflect his image, that we may share in the delight of God's rest. That's why we gather here today, this first day of the week, to celebrate the Savior who has made this a reality for us by his death and resurrection has brought us into God's rest. We're not here to keep some legalistic Sabbath requirement. That was yesterday. Today's meaning is filled with Jesus. For in Him we have already entered eternal rest. Well, does that mean we don't have to spend so much time and devote so much energy to things like worship and fellowship and instruction? That we don't have to give a whole day every week to that? Oh, no, on the contrary. In Christ, every day belongs to him. All of every day is to be lived for his glory. The Heidelberg Catechism reminds us we not only all agree to meet one day for worship and instruction, but I quote, every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. I let the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. God calls us to live in his rest, which he's provided in Jesus. Dr. James Boyce, in discussing this celebration of God's rest, which we have in Jesus, says that this is primarily a day of joy. That's what this is to be. His comments are instructive. He says, let us then be done with the long faces and the solemn Demeanors that so often characterize the people of God on the Lord's Day. And let us be done with the type of worshiper who comes to church only to go home. If you do not enjoy the worship of God and the fellowship of God's people, if you do not enjoy the preaching of the Word and the response of the congregation in word and song, stay home, he said. In the early days of the church, the apostles did not have to go around ringing doorbells to get people to come out to the service. They did not have to maintain every member visitation plans to renew flagging interest. In fact, the opposite was true. We read in the second chapter of Acts that the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These were happy Christians. And well they might be. And well might we be. For God has called us and through Jesus we have entered his eternal rest. Oh yeah, our hearts long for some utopia. But don't look for it in the wrong place. It will not be realized through someone's political agenda. It will not be realized in, in, in more wealth and prosperity and bigger parties and more fun. What our hearts are longing for is God's rest. As God takes pleasure in his paradise and invites us to enter into his rest with him, our hearts know that that's what we need, that's what life must be about. Here's our hope for a perfect world. And we taste it already as we come and worship Jesus, as we abandon ourselves and rest, trust and obey the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, too often our walk with you, our Christian experience, our religion is more rightly characterized as a heavy burden, laborious duty, solemn, difficult, miserable. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. For we've missed the point. Lord, as you delight in your paradise. Now you've called us to enter with you into perfect fellowship and and enjoyment, even in this fallen world where we suffer pain and rejection, persecution perhaps, but to do so resting in you and as you provided that, Lord, and made us holy in Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we know nothing but the great joy of our salvation, joy that sustains us even in the midst of pain and heartbreak, and yet, Lord, joy with which nothing can compete, for it's nothing less than your eternal rest. Enjoyed already, tasted even today, and certain forever. Lord, we can say these words, We don't understand yet the reality of them in every day of our life. Make it true, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.